welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly goes on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jer, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, we have crew member Grace. Hey, everybody. And we also have two very special guests who I will introduce and get them to tell you a bit about themselves, starting with Shashanka Varu. Hi, I am not a woman, but my mom is, so that's about the qualification I have to be on Women at War. This is very exciting. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we'll get you to tell us more about yourself a bit later because there's more to you than that. But um, for now, uh, our other guest is Michelle Zamanian. Hi. Thank you for having me. You are very welcome. And so I'll start with you, Michelle. Um, can you tell us maybe a bit about yourself and how you got interested in Star Trek? I just graduated with my MFA um, and I got into Star Trek when I was about seven years old. Um, I want to say that was around 90, 91. It was the first time I saw Star Trek, and I fell instantly in love. It was, like, exactly what I needed to see at that age. It was, like, a family coming together on the ship. I don't know. It was just really, really nice. Um, and I've been a fan ever since. Awesome. And you wrote a really cool piece for our blog on the TNG episode, The Drumhead, which we'll be discussing a little bit later. And uh, how about you, Shashank? Um, I am a data analyst. That's my day job and a fancy way of saying I write computer code. Uh, my night job is I write comic books. And uh, hopefully that's something I want to do at some point when I have uh, grown up and things have gotten to a point where I can do that full time. Uh, but I also do a couple of podcasts. I do body treks and weekly trek both for the tricorder transmissions both star trek podcasts and uh, how i got into star trek star trek started as a mystery for me when i was uh, 10 or 11 my mom and dad were talking about how they got married again and uh, they shared something that they hadn't shared before i'm from india and when my mom and dad were growing up arranged marriages were the norm so uh, this they were set up as a date to to go out and talk to each other, see if they got along in the early, I want to say in the mid 80s. And the first thing that they talked about, or one of the first things that they talked about is how both of them as kids saw Star Trek growing up, because it was one of the three things that was on in our TV back home in India in the 60s. Uh, and the just the the way their conversation started and th the fact that they had that common among themselves was uh, one of the reasons why they got together so i am in a in a very literal way a star trek baby <laughs> star trek brought you into this world that's incredible <laughs> it did <laughs> And uh, uh, I, I really didn't get into it a whole lot because I was like, that was something that mom and dad watched. Why would I watch that? But when I uh, watched the 2009 Star Trek, I just fell in love with the franchise all over again and I had to go back and watch it. So that's a really long, short story about how I got into Star Trek. Awesome. Yeah. Well, um, our main topic that we're going to be discussing today is citizenship and immigration or migration in Star Trek. And uh, before we get into that, just a, a brief piece of housekeeping as we always do. Our show is entirely supported by your patrons on pa patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media up to silly watch-along commentaries. Just visit patreon.com slash women at warp. 
You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So back to our main topic. And just before we get into Would you say we're migrating back to the main topic? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a, a short road getting from there to here. But uh, uh, we're going to start with uh, just some sort of really basic concepts uh, before we get into the Star Trek examples. Um, first of all, what is citizenship? I think it's a concept that a lot of us um, take for granted and kind of assume it's kind of a universal given, but it, it's not actually. It's a, a concept with a long and complex history in Western philosophy. But basically, when we talk about citizenship today, we're talking about a legal status that is defined by civil, social, and political rights and responsibilities in the domain of a sovereign state. So the right to vote, the right to, you know, who gets to identify as American or Canadian or British, uh, to work, to the right to greater privacy than some other people. There's a bunch of rights and there's also responsibilities that come along with being a citizenship. Some that are sort of more just assumed that like a good citizen would do this and some that are um, explicit. But it's important to note that historically groups of people have been excluded from full citizenship based on gender, race, etc. So um, it's not something that I think we're talking about as like to be a citizen is necessarily the goal. Um, but it's a thing that structures our world a lot today. And we're interested in exploring how it works in the Federation. Um, we're also going to be talking about immigration, including... Uh, voluntary and involuntary migration, uh, refugees, uh, as well as, uh, you know, the aliens that just really want to move to a different planet for some reason. So we're gonna, we're gonna discuss those things. And we have a, uh, a list of episodes, but does anyone have a particular one you would like to start with? Uh, no, I think as long as we get to a measure of a man, because that's the one I really felt connected to me the most and spoke to me the most about things like migration and citizenship, I'll be happy. All right. Um, well, uh, I might propose then that we start with the Deep Space Nine episode Sanctuary, if people are cool with that, because I think that it is one of the ones that is most directly connected to this topic. A lot of the other ones have sort of oblique references, but this is an episode that is basically all about refugees. Um, which is, of course, like one of the reasons we wanted to do an episode is because uh, refugee issues in particular are top of mind uh, for a lot of people in North America right now. Um, and of course, you know, people trying to come to North America. So I um, wanted to take a look at how this, this works in Star Trek. So um, Grace, do you want to take a stab at summarizing this episode briefly? Sure. Basically, the gist of the episode is we have a bunch of aliens come through the wormhole who've been... Uh, who've been displaced by this mysterious Dominion thing that I'm pretty sure we don't hear about again. I'm Right? We don't hear about this Dominion thing again, no. do we? Mm -hmm. It doesn't come up. One-off thing. I don't know why they even mention it. Um, <laughs> so basically, they've been displaced by this thing called the Dominion. They are all homeless now, and then they are given some time and space on uh, Deep Space Nine to figure out what they need to do while they try and track down a planet. And they decide Bajor. Bajor is an awesome planet. We should live on Bajor, and they're like, mm -hmm. and basically the people of Bajor have to be like, no, we um we kind of need that planet. I mean, we're not doing so great right now. We can find you another planet. And they're like, no, this, why don't you want us to stay with you? Are you do you not like <laughs> want us as guests anymore? What's your problem? 
and it becomes a tense political situation. Do you have something against farmer matriarchs with terrible hair? <laughs> I have something against dandruff jokes, thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Uh, we've yeah. got a we've got a pretty good listener comment from Oregon that uh, summarizes kind of one of the primary problems with the episode. If you don't mind, if I share that, no, go for it. The quote we've got from Oren is, Sanctuary always really bothered me because it seems to be casting refugees as greedy and ungrateful. Sup, pals? How about this cool new planet the Federation has? Nah, we want this planet, the one suffering from resource shortage and only freshly liberated from a brutal occupation, you know. If you don't settle on us on this specific planet, we will hate you forever. Which is pretty much how the, um, the aliens are being painted. They're being painted as literally very choosy beggars interesting that is a really interesting comment i added the last part without the choosy beggars <laughs> yeah i that was not Orin. that was great yes that was me on me baby did uh did either <laughs> of our guests have a have thoughts on this episode oh yeah well i guess the way that the episode was originally written um it was supposed to have kind of an uplifting end in, ending where these people actually do end up on Bajor. Um, and then it was rewritten by, I believe, Michael Piller um, to have a downbeat ending. So it ends on a kind of sour note, which I think is really interesting because it casts Kara ultimately with um, kind of a, a sense of bigotry and inability to see the benefit of their immigration for their planet and I think it's really heartbreaking and I almost feel it's like she couldn't accept that they would be beneficial for Bajor um, or she thought Bajorans wouldn't accept them yeah because I mean it starts out with she's having a really rough time dealing with Bajoran politics and resource shortages and all this kind of stuff so it makes it hard for her to like separate out the situation and even though she forms this really close friendship with the leader she has to kind of admit that uh, her government might have a point when they're like, no, we don't really have the the capacity to take on these like 3 million people. Um, but it's uh, it's like after this whole thing about how she's already really stressed out. And then the the like some of the um, refugees and are like being uh, in scuffles with Jake and Nog. Jake and Nog, those Two major aspects of Bajoran life. Xenophobia personified. <laughs> yeah. Well, and on that note, um, I think that it's interesting to note that at the beginning of the episode, they talk about how there's this part in this uh, area in Bajor where um, there's total famine. They can't farm the land. And it like just so happens that these people come along and they're expert farmers, but Bajor doesn't want them. Yeah. It's also like it kind of implies that or, I don't know. It, it strikes me as odd too that you know even if you have this logistic concern because they're saying, well, you know, the land isn't good anymore, and of course, if you started starving, we would feel like we had to feed you. Okay, but like, so you're gonna send them to a planet that no one else is on, and then what happens if they start starving there? Like, well, then it's not their problem, you see. And then if the Federation's going to step yeah. in in that case, why won't the Federation provide some assistance if a bunch of people are starving on Bajor, too? It raises a lot of questions. Uh, one really cool thing that I found about this episode, and I promise it has nothing to do with the actual topic, but I wanted to bring it up anyway, okay. 
is uh, the quote, men are far too emotional to be leaders. <laughs> They're constantly fighting amongst themselves. <laughs> it's their favorite thing to do. It just, it, I know the topic is very poignant, but it somehow feels like even that quote is poignant yeah. for a very different reason, very, very much relevant. Uh, yeah. I've always thought that if the federation shown in TNG and TOS represented the ideal America, uh, the federation and most governments shown in DS9 represent real governments. They're much closer and uh, they're a lot more similar than what you would find in an episode from TNG. So in that reference, what Bejo did to me, uh, I'm sorry, what Bejo did to the refugees was while not very surprising, it did seem in line with what would happen or what actually is happening to the refugees today. But the, the world can see and tell that there are places with all these resources, but instead of actually accepting them and uh, rejecting decades of data, there is uh, data from across the world over time that shows that when economies accept refugees, they accept migrants, their economies get better more co businesses open up because people come from other cultures and they want to grow the horizon for for the population available. Uh, but in rejecting such kinds of uh, really strong economic data, governments today would rather not accept refugees because they want to cite uh, incidents like the scuffles with Jake and Nog mm -hmm. to uh, to close uh, close themselves away from legitimately helping these people. Yeah. And much like the screens, the refugees today really have nowhere to go in the situation that they're in. So it just, it's a, it's a very, that's the first thing that struck to me in this episode. Yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, yeah, rewatching it, it, um, it did strike me that there were things here that were, I think, unfortunately realistic instead of the idealistic that we, um, even I think expected at this early stage of Deep Space Nine. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, um, the, definitely the stuff where they, like, uh, Quark's xenophobia is particularly pronounced, but, um, there's still sort of, it's, it's validated in some ways by showing these scuffles and then the, the sun stealing the ship and getting in like a firefight and everything. So it's, it's almost, it does kind of reinforce this idea that refugees are dangerous and probably are going to be a drag on the economy or the system instead of the like actual facts of refugee situations. Also interesting because we're getting all of these opinions made on them based of on a one space station worth of these uh, migrant population members um, of an entire species. That's the polling polling data that you get right there is from a very small group. Mm -hmm. It also makes in a weird way it makes sense to me too. Uh, I can understand the perspective to a point. I can I can get behind it. Because uh, just not too long ago, they were under the Cardassians, mm -hmm. uh, Bajorans, and the suffering that they had to go through, which I, I'm sure started out, if not exactly like this, similar to where people started coming in and they, they, they started making deals and arrangements and before they knew it, that planet was taken over. So I can see to a certain extent why something might like this might have happened, but uh, I'll say more about how the Federation suspiciously decided to stay you know a, a little play played a little safe in this and that disappointed me but 
that should have been the exact reason why I think the Bajoran government should have jumped at this and said, you know what, we are stronger than this. We know that even though that happened before, uh, that should not stop us from really helping people. Because if you look at it, Bajor is helped by Federation. And uh-huh. the entire reason why they're in that situation is because they somebody took a chance on them. So I would have imagined that the right thing to have done there would be to accept them. But because this is real, DS9, DS9 is real. It's more real and more uh, uh, similar to a real world. That made sense to me too, as the plot line itself. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, uh, let's uh, flip over. We're we're gonna go backwards through the uh, the canon today. Um, we're gonna go to uh, TNG. Um, we we definitely have a few episodes we want to touch on here. Um, one that I want to start with, which is the episode with the indigenous uh, settlement uh, the, of uh, people who are of American Indian descent. Um, who live on the planet that is being traded to the Cardassians, and the one where turns out that Wesley's on a vision quest with Traveler. But that's not the, I don't think the main purpose of the episode, but it is an interesting episode. Albeit that B-plot raises a lot of questions also. Yeah, it, it does, and you should really <laughs> yeah. take a listen to our episode, Indigenous Representation in Star Trek, where we talked about it in depth with some really cool guests. Um, but it's a, an interesting episode because... It talks a bit more directly about Federation citizenship and uh, the ability to renounce Federation citizenship and the types of rights and protections that maybe citizenship does or doesn't afford to groups of people. Um, Does anyone have any thoughts on Journey's End? Uh, The first thing that I realized when I saw this episode was that uh, it seems like even that far ahead in the future, minorities will still have problems having or or getting the land that they have found and having having what they have just holding right. on to it it seems like this episode is a really good metaphor to say hey no matter how far we go into the future you people will still be suffering i it it seems funny tragic mm-hmm. heartbreaking and terrifying all at once and it was just a lot to take in when i saw the episode but the fact that Starfleet went to the ends of the universe, but indigenous peoples were still suffering. It kind of broke my heart. Yeah, I mean, they said they had taken like 200 years to find that planet. You got to admit, um, you can't help but wonder if that is a byproduct of the thinking of the people writing the show, though, who are just used to seeing these minorities put into these situations. And if you're going to have, like, the first thing they think of if you're going to have a story with Native American characters is they are displaced, they are impoverished, that that is just the go-to for these groups of people for them story-wise. Yeah, that's that's yeah. tragic on its own, too. And it's like, um, it, like exactly what everyone's been saying. Um, it's like the, the toxicness of colonization mm-hmm. never really ends. I mean, I think they're... Uh, you know, not including the Wesley Traveler subplot. Um, there are some really, really nice moments in this episode. And I think the the dialogue between Picard and uh, Ned Romero, who plays Anthuara, um, there's some really powerful moments there. I appreciate that probably for... They're probably more powerful for a white viewer trying, like, thinking of this for the first time than for an indigenous viewer. Um, but, um, still some, some nice lines. But, um, 
what I thought was interesting is, so first of all, basically they give away their planet to the Cardassians. And they say, okay, well, we just have to move these people and they should just be happy because we're going to find them a new planet. So first of all, why didn't they find them a planet earlier than this if the people had been looking for 200 years? Also, if they've got another planet readily available, why not give that to the Cardassians? Yeah. Well, because the Cardassians are more, they're powerful, they have the... Uh, they're, they're, to put it bluntly, to me at least, it seems like clearly they're more important to them than these indigenous people. 100%. It's, Dish, a, it's not unlike familiar. the, it's not yeah. unlike the Dakota Access Pipeline yeah. situation, right? Everybody in the world came out in support of them, but it went through anyway, and now the Dakota Access Pipeline has gone through that land. Yeah, and there almost seems like that um, cliche of the greater good. Um, constantly going on um, in this episode with like the mm -hmm. higher ups, um, like the admiral being like, oh, this is for the greater good. Um, and it ends up basically coming down to um, the citizenships of these people in the Federation um, on this planet is complete, con completely conditional. Yeah. Um, and it's also heartbreaking and and i know that it's supposed to be and so it comes off a little bit heavy-handed but the reliving of history yeah i mean it's kind of gutting that like i think this is a good example of how citizenship is not like a universal neutral system that this was a system that was imposed on indigenous north americans and was and then basically but it's like well but you only get some of the benefits to start and only if you play ball. And then even in the 24th century, you still only get the benefits if you play ball. And that means being willing to be relocated again. And, um, you know, basically at the end, uh, Picard tells Anthuara that by um, renouncing their status as Federation citizens, any future request you or your people make to Starfleet will go unanswered because you'll be in Cardassian jurisdiction. So... Basically, they're cool with things going totally sideways after the fact. And it seems that seems odd to me because certainly they intervene on behalf of non-Federation citizens in other situations. Yeah, this is definitely a case of don't let the door hit your ass on the way out of our utopian society. Yeah, better not get sick, guys. It, I'm, sh I'm sure uh, things will be peachy for the people uh, who are going to be overtaken by a species who's well known for having their trials after a punishment has been executed. We'll just leave them there. They'll be. It's going to be fine. Fine. I do like the scenes with Picard and Galavac that are supposed to just make you feel a bit better about the deal at the end, but um, it's um, it's just. But it's then all difficult. of Deep Space Nine happens, and you're like, oh, Jesus, yeah. left from yeah. there. Well, and you're also just like, I really, really get the Maquis. If I didn't before, get them now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have a theory about why the Federation does not involve themselves as much in wanting to help these people out. Uh, I think it's because unlike Bejor, which is a strategic uh, opening point into a wormhole that gives them a lot of economic and military benefits, this is just a land that is going to be a pawn in a bigger game for the Federation. Mm -hmm. So it shows a little bit the hypocrisy of the Federation too, that aligns itself and shouts to the universe that we want peace and we want everyone to be accepted. And yet in this situation, they're, like you said, okay with everything going sideways for these people because 
well, they don't get the bigger benefits like they do with uh, with something like Beijing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point. And it kind of um, it speaks to what you were saying earlier about Deep Space Nine being more realistic. And I would say this episode of TNG is definitely more realistic mm-hmm. on that, too. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, next one is, um, that I think we should probably talk a bit about is the drumhead. And uh, Grace, did you want to read our listener comment from Lori? Absolutely. We've got a listener comment from Lori again here that says, I think about the drumhead a lot lately, given politics in the U.S. right now and the, and the us versus themness of it all. While the Federation is supposed to be almost like a utopia, it's a case of believing their own propaganda. It's a galactic sort of nationalism that doesn't and can't serve all its citizens. Very accurate. In case people don't remember the Drumhead episode, it's the one with Admiral Satie where there's basically a uh, sort of uh, McCarthy-esque court uh, that is uh, tracking down uh, supposed Romulan conspirators on board the Enterprise that ends up drawing in everyone who isn't uh, okay with uh, trampling on people's rights and liberties. And uh, while not directly conne- connected to uh, immigration, it does sort of touch on the idea of citizenship, second-class citizenship, and xenophobia, which unfortunately is kind of inseparable from the discussion of immigration Sadly. Uh, today, and apparently in the future, yeah. uh, in the Star Trek future. Um, so, uh, Michelle, did you want to talk a bit about this episode? Yeah, um, you know, it's really interesting how relevant this episode has stayed consistently yeah. throughout the years. It's really depressing, and then even more so lately. Um, and like I I mentioned earlier, um, I was kind of digging through immigration policies in the United States over time, um, because I knew that certain um, nationalities and ethnicities were not allowed to immigrate until the, um, until the Immigration and Nationality Act um, of 1965, though it wasn't passed until 1968. And I think that's particularly revel- relevant, um, specifically to me, because um, Iranians were not allowed to immigrate really until that time um there were some conditional aspects um but as i was looking back further uh into different immigration acts and how they've been passed um whenever i got to the 1920s um it almost resembled verbatim what's happening right now in the u.s Mm -hmm. with immigration (laughs) so it's just this like vicious cycle about every hundred years people here get really xenophobic um like more so than usual yep yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's how I want to mm-hmm. open with that. And, um, I mean, that, that same history, basically, in Canada, we had, like, a reform of the immigration system around the, the same time of the 60s and 70s to what we have now, which is a, called the point system, where you get, like, points for things like, um, you know, whether you speak English or French, whether what sort of... Um, uh, profession you're in, things that are like supposedly objective criteria, it's still a problem. Oh my but that gosh. was like their citizenship brownie points. Yeah, well, immigration, not even citizenship. Holy you crap. still have to like immigrate and go through the process. Um, and there's still pro- problems like just offhandedly, I'll mention the fact that there's um, the number of um, embassies like that process immigration applications in the UK is like really, really high. And there's in India, there's three. 
So you have like countries wow. with way more population and way more demand for immigration that they're basically like cutting off the flow of immigrants from those countries that are like not like white Western colonial countries um, that basically just on not providing enough services. So we still have problems today, but before that we had the same system systems as the US where there were like, if not deliberate bans on immigrants, then um, there was a like a thing that the government apologized for called that was a head tax on Chinese immigrants that they just kept raising and raising it to try and make it less affordable for Chinese immigrants. Um, there were restrictions on numbers of immigrants from India and other countries and like really ridiculous laws to try to make it harder for people to get to Canada. So same, same deal. Not just the States. Oh boy, everywhere is terrible. <laughs> it's not difficult to connect uh, more recent events like the U.S. government's Muslim ban yeah. and uh, this other uh, administration rule that is going to go through, which is if immigrants ever get on something like social security or uh, if they use food stamps, their uh, citizenship or their green card privileges should be limited. It's a new rule that's going to be passed soon by by the Trump administration, but it's difficult not to connect them to something like the plot lines in this episode mm -hmm. where Sati brings out incidents from the past and says, oh, because this happened, all of these people are bad, which is the logic that was used for the Muslim ban is, oh, because these attacks happen, every Muslim person is uh, a bad person. And even though that's half true, because not all Muslim nations are banned, particularly the ones that Trump has business relations with are, are completely open and free for people to travel. Uh, which is again <laughs> a side point, and I'm sorry for going off on that tangent, but this episode Tangent's highlights welcome. how uh, tangents <laughs> welcome here. Uh, this episode highlights how uh, you can use, uh, and governments do that today, and it looks like they'll be doing it in the future. They use incidents from the past, isolated incidents, to specify uh, targeted individuals and say how you know, because this happened in this one place. Like when Sati brings up uh, Stardate, I, I forget the actual Stardate, but she she brings up the uh, Tepel incident and she, she says, hey, because that happened, all Romulans are bad and because you are fighting for them, Picard, you are a traitor. And there is, there is that pointing of fingers because of isolated incidents to basically reject an entire species which is not unlike the things that are happening today with, uh, with the U.S. government in particular. Yeah, and I would like to point out that um, a lot of the countries in the, quote, Muslim ban um, are countries that do not have um, economic relations with the United States, and also most of them don't buy weapons for the United States. So I just want to throw that out there. Airport to bring up. Also, none of uh, none of the I believe none of the terrorists that were involved in 9/11 were from those countries. No, 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 yeah. they were not from those countries. Yeah, but it's like the facts don't matter when because they're they're stoking fear, and you get um, and the same thing in the drumhead where it starts out like, oh, okay, well, we suspect Simon Tarsus because he lied about being part Romulan, and um. Like, that's already a little scary, and I think Picard's advocating is really powerful. But then, because Picard advocates for him, Picard comes under suspicion. And then the, I think, like, the more egregious example is then when she basically turns on Worf, who she's been complimenting this entire time, 
um, and is like, oh, because your father was an alleged Romulan conspirator, even though they never had reason to believe that. Um, and just like, well, you're obviously suspect too. So it's like this whole... Everyone can... is suspects! Yeah, and it's it's like, and that's how you get um, like Sikhs being attacked from wearing turbans because people are afraid of Muslims because of xenophobia after 9-11. Like you get this whole thing that like the facts get totally lost and it's all just how you look and influences your like right to safety and security and justice in even the country you might be a citizen of. Yeah, and I even kind of touched that a little bit in the end of my essay, where I kind of talk about being misidentified and how that's also a different kind of um, danger. I think that a lot of minorities have that issue as well, you know, just like with the Sikhs, for example, or um, I'm thinking of a pretty terrible example of where two um, Indian men were misidentified as Iranian in Kansas City and they were shot. Mm -hmm. So, um, like, that's just like a whole other level of misidentification. And I think that it's terrifying in the episode, especially um, that, you know, Simon Tarsus grew up as a human basically he just had like this small part of his genetic code was romulan and that alone made him suspicious um and i relate to that a lot um unfortunately because i am half iranian so like you know i have to kind of play that game with people and go are they cool can i talk to them about this um, it's always on my mind. Uh, one thing of note also in this episode is the very impressive tactic that seems to have outlasted centuries, uh, which is that when somebody says something false and you point them out and you say, hey, you're, what you're saying is false, they accuse you of being a traitor or a ra or uh, saying you're not one of us by, they, by, 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 by making you fear that what you're pointing out is wrong, they they instill that insecurity in you. And that's how uh, for generations, people who are really willing to stand up for someone are so scared of the consequences because they don't know what would be called at for them, that even knowing that something's wrong, they're too afraid to come out and say it. And that's what Seti does. And uh, when she accuses Picard of treason and, uh, it made it. It felt really right when, at the end of the episode, Picard said, "Vigilance, Mister Worf. This is the price we have to continually pay. That people have to continue to be vigilant, and no matter how many people yell out fake news and what you're saying is wrong, and you don't know how it's like, and men's rights are being abused. That is the one that's under danger. Uh, when people say things like that, it's it's very important to be vigilant and point that out, even if people accuse you of things. Well, well said." So if there's nothing else on the drum head, um, we can move on to another TNG courtroom episode, which is A Measure of a Man. And I think uh, you wanted to talk about this episode, Shashank. Oh, yeah. Measure of a Man is, uh, is that episode that uh, was the aha moment for me when I was watching The Next Generation. I'll confess, uh, I, I prefer Deep Space Nine to The Next Generation just because I, there is A, a brown guy who's a lead on the show, so that, that felt really good to me. And uh, B, because, the like I said, the plot line seemed more real and they, more, they connected more with me. But when I saw Measure of a Man, which is in season two, which doesn't have a whole lot of good episodes, uh, I... 
I became so obsessed is the wrong word. I became so fascinated with that episode. I actually that sat down and wrote fan fiction for myself uh, in in the episode in which Aww. I was in the chair that Data was oh, in. Wow. And there was there was an an American on Picard's side, an American and Riker's side. And they were both arguing about how if there is a kid in India who grew up and all he wanted to do with his life was live in America. And all that he thought was the greatest thing I'll ever do with my life is move to America. And more than anything, more than breathing, I want to be American. If I have that kind of love for a country, for a culture and something that an ideal that I want to be a part of, will I get to be that? Will a paper decide that? Will a scientific process decide that? Or does my word count for anything? And so Measure of a Man worked on so many levels for me. It seemed like the really, really underrated uh, metaphor for immigration. A lot of people talk about it as a metaphor for humanity and what it means to be human. On another level, it connected to me about what it means to love a country in which you'll always only be a guest or a visitor. And even if you love it so much that you embody it in every way, will you ever be able to be one with it? Uh, for, would you like me to summarize it? I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I think we uh, most people will be familiar, but it's the episode where it's is data human or not. We episode. bring this episode up a lot. <laughs> nice. I'm I'm impressed. Count me on that jukebox. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think that's uh, something that we thought about before. Um, and just a random sort of related uh, note on this episode, uh, Melinda Snodgrass, the writer. Um, was asked about how Data might become a citizen of the Federation and like what her thoughts were around this episode and Data's citizenship rights as an android. And she said that it's possible that he could have become or he could become a citizen once his humanity is established based on uh, Dr. Soong's citizenship uh, as like that he would be seen as equivalent to uh, an offspring of Dr. Soong. Um, or possibly that there could be a system wherein someone like Data or perhaps like Jayla in Star Trek Beyond could um, be able to apply for citizenship after a certain number of years of service in Starfleet. It's not something that Star Trek really deals with in terms of like, how, how does this whole thing actually work? How do you become a Federation citizen? What rights does that bestow on you? There's there's like very, very few actual details in the show. For an organization with crews brave enough to go down and stop a volcano from bursting open so these people will survive on a planet that they have no connection to, they really seem to like their paperwork about people who want to belong to their organization. Yeah? <laughs> they, it is funny how they choose which things to get super pedantic over. Well, and I mean, sometimes it seems like captains can just hand out citizenship. Like, oh, hey, uh, we rescued you off this planet, and you seem to want to hang out with us. You seem cool. Um, you're a citizen now. Like, they have you can, five or... "you are a citizen now" cards that they're given at the start of every year. They have to yeah, or maybe not. Maybe it just means you can hang out on Earth, but you can't vote in our elections. Or maybe there are some restrictions. Uh, that it, it's sort of implied that the Federation may work sort of like um, a European Union type situation, at least in terms of travel rights, that people can travel freely between Federation worlds, uh, that you get to vote for the Federation government. We know that uh, there are there is a uh, Federation constitutional guarantee against self-incrimination, 
We know there's a guarantee protecting the rights of artists from the Voyager episode author, author, and there's a guarantee uh, guaranteeing the right to counsel. Um, so we know that there are there are there is a framework of rights and responsibilities for citizens of the Federation. And then in order to join the Federation, it's sort of reinforced that members must, uh, well, we know they have to have an advanced level of technology, political unity. And in the Deep Space Nine episode Accession, Cisco notes that Bejor would be rejected or would risk rejection if it took up caste-based discrimination in contravention of the Federation Charter. And this comes up also in episodes like Attached and stuff about like why you aren't good enough to be members of the Federation. Are there any thoughts on that about like what it means to be a, a Federation planet member and some of the sort of system around that? Okay, well, uh, it it is so uh, not it's not just hypocritical. It's it's so uh, confusing that if you're going to search out into the universe and say I'm going to accept everyone and anyone. Wouldn't your prime directive really be, we should be accepting of everyone? Because if we can't accept people, how can we expect them to accept us and make make uh, make do with us and have a relationship with us when we are so selective? Uh, like my one of my uh, most confusing emotions with uh, Star Trek is the way Federation and really a lot of people in the show deal with the Maquis. The Marquis, ultimately, they, what they want and the, the way they try to achieve it, that's quite really questionable. But ultimately, they want what Federation wants. They want this place that they think they have a right to. And they're trying, they're doing their best to, to get there by, by in, in, a, in a very revolutionary, very, yes, radical way or violent way. But still, shouldn't the Federation at least hear them out? Shouldn't the Federation be on their side? Because in a weird way, they're also trying to do what the Federation does in a lot of ways. So it's just, there is there are so many uh, hypocritical things in uh, in the show about the Federation that I actually credit the writers for because I think in a way they, they want us to know these things. They, they're telling us, hey, this is the cost of running a bureaucracy if you want to go around the universe is that we will pick and choose things. Yes, that's how it will work. We'll give you ideals of Picard, but really what we're doing is Garrick-style diplomacy, and you have to live with it. Hmm. Yeah, there's um, there's some interesting writing on uh, around sort of these issues and the Prime Directive and um, the way that uh, our, our heroes explore the galaxy and approach possible first contacts, possible new Federation members. Um, Daniel Leonard Bernardi has a book called Star Trek and History Racing Towards a White Future and uh, sort of accuses Star Trek. Um, I, and to be clear, this is like up to very early Deep Space Nine, um, but he's mostly talking about Next Generation, about um, saying that it, it ignores the uh, white racist past and um, through episodes like Time's Arrow um, and uh, in or and like by forgetting about that past, it continues with the model of colonialism that has been the way that things are set up. And that like it, basically, they kind of go around lecturing to people about why you can't be members of the Federation, um, or gracing people with the decision to let them be members of the Federation. And that isn't um, there's not really like an objective set of criteria. There's it's a it's a value 
laden sort of system and it's often quite subjective. Good point. Yeah, I think that's the perfect example. Um with like the colonization and federation. I think about that a lot when I'm watching and I've actually seen that be a common um concern about discovery, which I don't really agree with, but I kind of see where people are coming from and I think that's definitely true about um older Star Trek. Um and I think that it was more I think it was well intentioned for the most part, but I think that that was a consistent problem, um, particularly in the original series and less intentionally um, in Next Generation. Like, I think, I, like, the intention of the Prime Directive as non-interference, yeah, I agree that it, it was well intended, but it it also is problematic when it's like, yeah, well, we're just not interfering with people who are less advanced instead of these people are different and have value that we could learn from, not just like from an just anthropological such a lo- such study. a loaded concept. Yeah. I really think the prime directive in the future should come with an asterisk. So everybody's aware that there is a conditions apply clause. <laughs> and those conditions will be decided at the discussion of starting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They are due to change based on what needs to happen that week. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, we have a, a couple more examples to throw in here. Did anyone want to hit on any of the other TNG episodes on the list? Um, one that I looked at pretty closely um, uh-huh. was Attached. Um, and then the villainization of the Kess mm-hmm. versus the Prit. And what a huge role propaganda played in propagating their poor relations. I don't know if anyone else has anything to add to that. So this this is the episode where Picard and Crusher are kidnapped and psychically joined together. And meanwhile, Riker is trying to negotiate some uh, uh, diplomacy between these two factions on a planet. And one of them wants to join the Federation and the other one doesn't. Um, but I can't actually remember how propaganda factors in. So could you refresh my memory a little? Yeah, so um, I believe it was... Actually, I can't remember which one of them came above or came onto the Enterprise. Um, but they had all these gadgets in a room and they were kind of driving um, Starfleet crazy with all their demands. Um, and they had like extreme paranoia towards the other, I don't know if we call them country or species, or I think they look the same. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it just, it seemed kind of perfect whenever you look at um, any culture that villainizes the other, like it's extra paranoid and extra, um, like hyper vigilant. Like they're, they have like very, uh, extreme surveillance, uh, techniques mm-hmm. and they're constantly looking for proof that the other side is devious. Yeah. And then labeling everyone as a spy. <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, cause, yeah, I mean, I, I picked this episode out because it, it shows an example of where they, they end up saying basically neither of you is good enough to be a member of the Federation. One of you is really isolationist and the other one is really paranoid and neither of you can join us. So, um, but that's, that's another good point too about like how internal, internally to this planet, they're, deeply fearful and distrustful of one another 
and uh, and have this uh, the, the you're right the one that's more technical. I can't remember which one it is either the Kessel the Prit the technological ones. They're um, like using all of these strategies of monitoring and surveillance to basically try and build a case against the ones that they just don't trust. Yeah, I can think of so many real life examples. It's kind of been yeah. I promise I'm not trying to knock on the Federation. I still think it's the best organization in Star Trek. But uh, if you could actually accuse in DS9's uh, Sanctuary, the first episode we talked about, you could accuse the Bajoran government of both a little bit of isolationism and paranoia. And yet the Federation has such a Western interest, they can't help but change their, uh, their tunes to make sure they match it with the people they least want to offend. There is a little bit of hypocrisy there for you between mm, the franchises. Yeah. Plus, they're eager to get Bajor into the Federation as soon as possible because, uh, as once yeah. they, especially <laughs> once they figure out they're near the wormhole, and because yeah. of strategic interests involving the Maquis. Suddenly, there's just so many less loopholes to jump through on joining the Federation at that point. <laughs> Suddenly, that asterisk just disappears, yeah. and you can have all the. <laughs> They get the simplified terms and services. Yeah. Yeah, but um, that's really interesting. Um, so, I mean, well, not an episode. Uh, I did also put Star Trek Insurrection on this list um, because this deals with an attempted forced migration of a group of people that they think are pre-warp basically because Federation corruption. Movie's <laughs> so freaking weird. Any, any thoughts on Star Trek Insurrection? Why are they withholding all that, like, Fountain of Youth planet from everyone else? Everyone wants to stop time and see the flowers, whatever that flower did. There's, like, less than 200 people in that town. Why do they get an entire planet? <laughs> um, and maybe if we all get some of that Fountain of Youth, we could get rid of our dandruff problem. <laughs> oh, you think so? <laughs> do you really think so? Well... And then once they figure out that the people are actually highly advanced, theoretically, couldn't they uh, open negotiations with them to share land on the planet? But I mean, I guess the, they do sort of talk about other options. But by this point, uh, skin stretchy man and uh, bad, a bad the guy admiral. who killed Mozart, don't you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, F. Murray Abraham uh, as a... Uh, Ruafo, um, and uh, the uh, mean mean admiral. They're like, we need to get this stuff, this planet stuff, faster. So that's why we're going to build this collector that kills the whole planet. I mean, I think it's this is one of the most clear examples of like Federation corruption leading to direct violation of the Federation stated principles, and one of the most convoluted plots of any of the movies. Yeah. <laughs> Um, also includes surveillance, um, in this case, like archaeological or anthropological uh, surveillance at the beginning. Um, like, let's see how advanced they really are. And um, yeah, it's it's weird. <laughs> yeah, the thing that kind of stood out to me about Insurrection when I was reading about it um, and kind of like refreshing my memory about it was the basically taking resources from another people and then claiming it for your own and then all the corruption that goes into doing that. Um, kind of like how someone already brought up Standing Rock. I was thinking of that. 
that and I mean and it again goes to this um idea of um sort of the uh, uh the ends justify the means or that the uh like the for the greater good I think um it goes to that like utilitarian concept where um they're like well but we can share this fountain of youth across the federation and like what's this 200 people care about it um and uh, it also connects back to journey's end because i think card makes a little speech about how forced relocations are really awful in human history um so yeah it's um it's kind of interesting the other concept it kind of brought to mind for me is i don't know if you guys learned this in your uh like these concepts in your high school but in like Canadian social studies, we learn about like how the American approach to immigration has been the melting pot. There was like literally a thing that the Ford company would do where they would have um, immigrant employees um, in like the, uh, you know, the early days of the automobile. Um, they would wear traditional, they would have these big party uh, demonstrations and um, they would make a giant cardboard pot that said melting pot and they would have immigrants like wear traditional clothing and walk into the melting pot and then come out wearing all the same Ford uniform or like traditional like not traditional ah. American clothing. So like this symbolic idea that you come here that you better like learn our language and our way of doing things saying this in quotation marks like there is one American way of doing things and uh, that's like part of the contract. And then we learn that by contrast, and this is not 100% true, that Canada's approach is a mosaic, which is like putting all the different pieces together to make a pretty picture. Um, and that uh, we're supposedly more uh, tolerant or accepting or celebrating of differences, which theoretically sounds like a lot to me, like what infinite diversity and infinite combinations should be. Um, it just, in practice we work a lot like America. So in practice, not so much, but that is, um, that was just a concept that occurred to me um, when I was watching some of these episodes too, is that that sort of link between the idea of like a mosaic form of immigration and um, idic. Uh, uh, that that brings to mind a question. I, I'd really like to hear uh, all, all three of your opinions on it. If there was a government that operated like the Federation, do you think it would have existed and been successful in our world today, like in both practice and in policy, if they had really meant everything they said about IDIC? And, I want to uh, believe it could happen. If I can quote another sci-fi franchise. <laughs> yeah, I want to believe that it's true, but I don't know. The events of the past few years slash week has got me yeah. not really as idealistic as I like to be. But the but the seven year old me that was watching Star Trek for sure believes that. You know? I, I know not everybody believes it, but I still think the closest thing to Starfleet in the best and worst way possible is America. The the way the constitution is written and the way the government functions. Or more more broadly it's the west and the the, the NATO countries, the countries that belong to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization that practice a certain form of democracy and freedom of speech. So I've, I've always been curious. And to answer your question, Jara, from earlier, our immigration system in India is run away as far as you can from cholera. Ah. Oh my God. Wow. So the, the United Federation of Planets uh, charter 
is supposed to be based on the UN charter. And we hear uh, there's uh, one Voyager episode where I think you see part of it on a screen and it's basically just like an edited version of the UN charter. So I think if we're considering the United Federation of Planets and the UN to be similar, um, I, I would hope it would go better. Um, but I mean, I still like think the UN is a valuable thing. It's just got its issues for sure. Um, I mean, and I also was trying to think about this in terms of like a uh, a federal system like we have in Canada with the federal government and provinces or like you have with um, with states and and the federal government. And uh, I mean, I think the structure is possible. I just don't know. It's hard. I, I think like our our the way that our government systems work and our voting systems um, especially when there's like built in, uh, voter suppression and then that, that only seems to be increasing. I think it would be very difficult to get to a government, uh, from where we're at now, uh, that would be able to manifest those ideals. You've definitely answered my question. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap up, um, I also had a couple enterprise episodes I wanted to throw in there. Um, which, um, also touch on, uh, xenophobia and, um, and actually go back to this idea of what does it mean to be a Federation citizen? This is, you know, we're talking about the birth of the Federation near the end of season four of Enterprise. And, uh, in response, there, uh, so they're starting to have these, uh, discussions on treaties between the humans, the Vulcans, the Andorians, and the Tellarites. And people on Earth go a little bit, uh, a little caca, as Scott Bakula would say in another series. And uh, we end up with a bizarre um, sort of group of uh, human, uh, humans first fascists who oppose all aliens on Earth and uh, groups of people that follow them even though that seems extreme. Um, so um, any any thoughts on the these uh, episodes near the end of season four of Enterprise? I'm talking specifically about demons and Terra Prime, but there's also a uh, home near the beginning of season four where Phlox is attacked on Earth for being Denobulan. Well, um, I was specifically thinking about home um, whenever Phlox has that encounter at the bar. While it felt dangerous, I think that it had kind of like a Star Trek edge where, you know, you you know nothing too terrible isn't going to happen to yeah. Fox. So that was kind of in my mind. And again, I was thinking of that incident in Kansas City and kind of juxtaposing that whenever I was rewatching it. But yeah, it's it's disturbing, especially for like the way that Earth is at that time. Um, just this rise of fascism suddenly obviously feels very timely, even though this episode aired in, actually, I'm not sure when, maybe around 2004. Um, it feels more timely than ever. Yeah, absolutely. I think the part that bothers me about Home is this scene where after Phlox is assaulted, um, he's talking with Hoshi and basically tells Hoshi she doesn't have a responsibility to like, oh, you know, I understand why, why humans would be upset because they've just been attacked and, you know, we just have to give them some time. And, um, I didn't like, like, you know, Hoshi's really upset on his behalf. And I think when 
people who have more power and more rights and more rights as a citizen in a country see people being oppressed and assaulted and attacked that they should feel a responsibility to do what they can to stand up to be vigilant and i think i feel like flocks kind of like just lets the humans off the hook in that episode and it's kind of and by extension like the writers kind of are so that i think is unfortunate yeah that's a little disturbing and it also kind of makes me think of like just after 9-11 how not vocal people were about protecting others mm. after that yeah but um i mean we okay we 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 talk down on enterprise a lot on this podcast i will say that i actually really appreciate the D- demons and terror prime arc for for this sort of reasons that you were saying in michelle in terms of like they're very terrifying they are especially in the light of how things are are going in the the rise of uh, fascism and, and right-wing populist movements that we're seeing in uh in uh north america and uh, europe there are some parts of these episodes that are really uncanny and I think um, what is powerful about it is it it has still like some nice trekky moments. There's, you know, Archer gives a monologue that you can actually kind of buy about the importance of um, of working together and the need for the the uh, different alien groups not to break up this alliance. Um, there's um, it doesn't validate the sort of human only nationalism that these extremist groups are promoting and instead shows like that would be the wrong way forward so i I like that i think there are actually some some pretty solid episodes of enterprise yeah and then it's not to say that i'm letting the writers off the hook you know on the flub with hoshi and some of the other things that happen enterprise in general Mm -hmm. but it is nice to have those moments in there that are especially irrelevant and that and i think that's what made season season four so good yeah i would agree okay if anyone has any other episodes you want to raise or other thoughts about federation citizenship migration refugees xenophobia any of that well the one ds9 episode that comes to mind often when i think about citizenship or immigration or how it's really easy to turn people against each other is home front in Homefront, just the, the inserting that that little uh, worm of an idea into people's head that anybody can be from the Dominion and everybody learning about it. Not only do we see how successfully or almost successfully it's used to politically turn people against each other, but the fact that uh, things happen to a point where someone as you know valiant as ironclad as Cisco starts to suspect his own father for a second. Uh, you know that 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 kind of human level speaks a lot to what you were talking about earlier with the 9/11 metaphors and how in how anything can be turned into using using an incident or using a, a certain emotion as fuel to turn against each other. It's surprising how easy it is to do that, and it's shameful how easy it is to do that too. But it just baffles me and Homefront always seemed like a, uh, like when I see that episode, I can't help but look at the way brown people are treated after 9-11 because everybody started suspecting everybody and it was just, uh, it was just chaotic. 
Yeah, that's the perfect episode to illustrate that. There's a lot of episodes. <laughs> yeah, and you always remember the best ones at the very end of recording. I yeah, swear. I mean, like, we didn't talk at all about Up the Long Ladder, guys. I actually have notes on that. <laughs> okay, awesome. I mean, I feel like that's maybe a good one to end on because we've, we've covered a lot of really heavy topics and there are some, I think there's some thoughtful things to say about Up the Long Ladder, but it is not a heavy episode. This is the one with the uh, boatload of Irish stereotypes. Good lord. <laughs> yeah, this is the first one I, I watched while rewatching these episodes. Um yeah, the Irish stereotypes are really thick. Um and a little hard to like watch her on the episode for that. And also it's hard to get around Riker kind of being uh a creep. Yeah. And then let us sleep with some refugees now. That sounds good. Uh, Riker, we want to like you, damn it. Yeah, so my notes are kind of like about socioeconomic class and technology privilege. Um, and, you know, one stray thought is that only one kind of um, type of living is unsustainable. So just being all um, technology-based or just being all um, agriculture-based is not sustainable, I think. Um and purposefully closing yourself off to diversity and variety of people can be really harmful in the long run, as we see with the um, the technologically based um, colonists, where they're, um, just to remind everybody, they have cloned themselves so many times that their DNA is degrading. And they also just turn their noses up at the um, the agricultural people. So... You know, just fun yeah. bunches all around in this episode. Yeah. Lest we forget that many early immigration restrictions in uh, North America were targeted at Irish immigrants. So, um, I mean, in that oh, way, yes. that's kind of appropriate. Many of whom had to leave Ireland because of a very specific agricultural practice that screwed them over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this episode yeah. does not, I think, really do that history any justice. Um, it's the Bachelor for gene pools. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's something else, too, about um, assimilation. So, like, you know, while doing that population um, matchmaking, um, if they can assimilate to each other's cultures or not, I think that's kind mm -hmm. of in there, too. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, um, we are getting to the end of our time. Does anyone have any final thoughts? Uh, when we, when you told me about recording this episode, I, I was under the assumption that, hey, you know, this is going to be a discussion about what it means to be a citizen. But uh, what turned out to be a great surprise is that it actually turned into a, a discussion about what the problem with the system is. And that's not unlike the world we live in today. Uh, what people usually assume is if somebody is rejected or if somebody cannot belong to a society that they want to be, that there is something wrong with that person. But I think what we did with this episode today is prove over and over that there are so many, it's so many outward factors that affect someone and keep someone from being where they really want to be. And uh, if anything, it should help everyone reconsider if they do have 
negative stances about any kind of people or cultures that you know if you are thinking that somebody might not be good enough to be at a place or belong to a system that they want to be a part of maybe the problem is not with them the problem is with the system that is not accepting enough or not free thinking enough or not wide enough to to bring everyone under its umbrella if there is a system out there that wants to bring prosperity it will not do that at while being isolationist and being closeted within itself it'll just choke on its own on its own you know to quote unquote integrity and die but what we have seen especially with citizens in star trek and citizens in the real world is that the only way to grow is by accepting people the only way to grow is by accepting differences and celebrating who we are and not trying to fight each other for what your idea of that other person is uh yeah i was just kind of thinking about just general paranoia propaganda xenophobia and what roles that plays in immigration and citizenship and how those things are not only toxic for you know the people who are trying to make a home in a new place but also for the people who are already there um you can't have like a fulfilling nice society whenever those are the main things that are always on people's minds yeah it's certainly um not uh fun or fulfilling to be living in a state of fear and suspicion all the time and probably prevents from moving forward and forming uh, productive uh, partnerships and relationships and uh, appreciating infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Awesome. Well, it was so great having both of you here. Um, we're we're going to do, do our outros. And uh, this is where we ask you uh, where people can find you elsewhere on the interwebs or if there's anything else you're working on that you would like to plug at this point. Um, so I will start with you, Michelle. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Emmy Zamanian. So that's M-E-C-A-M-A-N-I-A-N. Um, I'm mostly just ranting to the void about various political issues so um and then i am working on um some uh, what they call fabulous fiction i'll be reading at the writing conference in march so that's a little ways away um, but that's all I have on my plate right now. And how about you, Shashank? People can find me on at gutter underscore hero on Twitter, which is about the only social media I use. It's a uh, it's a great place if you want to read about more political tweets and comic book related tweets because there aren't enough of those going around on Twitter. Uh, and if if you're really really interested, I would appreciate it if you reached out and found the Tricorder transmissions on which I co-host. Polytrex, which is a political Star Trek podcast. We try to find common ground between real world politics and Star Trek. And uh, we try to make light and seriousness of it all. And then I co-host Weekly Trek, on which we cover uh, the news that it has, uh, that, that came in over the week in, in Star Trek. So those are two podcasts that I do. And I would appreciate it if you got to listen to it. Fabulous. And Grace? Find me on Twitter at BoneCrusherJank. And in your dreams. And uh, I'm Jara, and you can find me on Twitter at J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin. And if you would like to get in touch with our show, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash women at warp. You can find us on Twitter at women at warp and on Instagram at women at warp. We're also 
on, uh, we have our own website, womenatwarp.com, where you can comment and you can email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. And, uh, if, uh, another way that you can help out, uh, our podcast is by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast to help other people find us. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Podcast.roddenberry.com.